Welcome to the Way Home Podcast, where we feature conversations on church, community, and culture. From Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, Dan Darling. Today, our conversation is with my friend, Bob Lapine. If you've been a listener of Christian Radio for any length of time, Bob Lapine is no stranger to you. He's the Senior Vice President and Chief Creative Officer at Family Life and is the longtime co-host of their syndicated radio program, Family Life Today. Bob is also a popular guest host on radio stations around the country and is the voice for several leading Christian radio programs, including Alistair Begg and Moody Radio's Today in the Word. Uh, Bob is also a teaching pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock. I conducted this interview with Bob during the National Religious Broadcasters Convention here in Nashville. Bob is the MC of this event every year and serves on the board of trustees for NRB. I really enjoy talking to Bob because he's a good conversationalist. So today our discussion covered his career in broadcasting, his perspective on the evangelical movement today. And I also asked him what he tells young broadcasters who want to get uh, into the industry. If you love audio, if you love radio, this is going to be a great conversation to listen to. Before we begin, I want to mention a new initiative of the ERLC, a Leland House Press, and my new book, uh, Engage, How to Maintain a Christian Witness Online. I want you to watch for this and other ebook titles at erlc.com slash leland. That's erlc.com slash l-e-l-a-n-d. Uh, We'll have links to this and information uh, from this conversation and also about Leland House on the podcast page on my website, danieldarling.com. But for now, let's join our conversation with Bob Lapine. So, Bob Lapine, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. This is great. Looking forward to it. So, I just want to talk about... What you've seen in your career as a Christian broadcaster, pastor, leader in the evangelical world. And so maybe just kind of start with, how did you get into broadcasting? Was this something that you aspired to when you were in high school or something you picked up later in life? When I was uh, in the sixth grade, I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer because I watched Perry Mason on television. (laughs) And he used to argue with people and get them to break down and confess. And I thought, I want to win debates and get people to confess and think my (laughs) way. So that's what that was my career path. And when I headed off to college, I talked to a a cousin who was a lawyer. And I said, what should I study? And he said, anything but pre-law. He said, you want to study something you'd enjoy, something you think you'd make good grades in, Mm because the law school is not going to care. In fact, they'd probably prefer that you studied something other than Mm pre-law. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Now the question was, what did I want to study as an undergrad? And I thought communications, journalism, broadcasting, print, I thought that would be fun. Mm -hmm. I'd always loved radio. I grew up with a transistor radio under my pillow at night when my parents had told me to go to sleep. I was still listening to pop radio in the 60s and the 70s. So I had a fascination with radio. I Mm -hmm. thought, this will be fun for four years. I'll study this and then go to law school. And I took a summer job after uh, I finished my undergraduate work as I was preparing for law school. Took a summer job at a radio station. And I was having a great time. And they came to me mid-summer and they said, we'll give you a raise if you'll stay and postpone law school for a year. And I thought, if I postpone law school, I may never get there. But... I'm having fun, so why not? Mm -hmm. 
So I was doing, I was a news reporter at a news talk radio station. I, I took the raise. I mean, when I say a raise, I went from seven fifty a month to eight fifty a month. So <laughs> it was not huge, but it was enough to, to make me say, let's, let's do this. And, uh, I'm still doing radio, and if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to law school. That's my plan. <laughs> you know, when I think when listeners hear you on Family Life Today or with Alistair Bag or any any of the shows that you've hosted or see you MC, they really get a sense that you really enjoy this. Like, yeah. you really like what you do. Is that true? It, it really is true. Um, it has uh, never felt like work. The opportunity to sit down and talk with Pretty much anybody you'd like to ask questions of, you call mm-hmm. and say, can we do an interview? They, they come in and you get yeah. an hour or two with them asking questions. I mean, how great is that, yeah. right? And then the opportunity to uh, to influence and to shape people's thinking and their direction. That's a privilege, and it's something that you've got to steward well. It, it's a responsibility, but I think it's what we're here to do. I love doing it. You've met so many famous people in in family life. You guys are interviewing people all the time. Do you have a favorite interview? Do you have a favorite kind of bucket list interview? Or you maybe have several? There's one that really stands out that was a, uh, you talk about famous people. This was one of those situations where I was really looking forward to meeting this guest and being able to interview her. It's Elizabeth Elliot. Mm. And the thing that made it a favorite was... What I expected in the interview was what I'd always heard from Elizabeth, which is kind of that stern school teacher. Mm -hmm. And what we got was warmer and friendlier and more relational than what I expected. And so to, to be interviewing her and have it be a warm conversation was... First, I'm meeting with a, a hero of the faith. Secondly, somebody who uh, is theologically rooted and substantive. And now it's a, a warm, friendly mm-hmm. conversation. I could say that about Johnny Tata. I could say mm-hmm. about so many folks we've interviewed. But honestly, the interviews that are some of my real favorites are names you would not recognize. It's the people who have come in and shared redemption stories mm-hmm. with us. When we sit down with a couple and they share about how their marriage was dead or how they had a prodigal situation or something mm-hmm. that just takes you to the point where you go, how does anybody come back from this? And then they they include the but God part of the yeah. interview. When that happens, we just say, that was a holy moment. And those are some of my favorite interviews. It seems like, you know, asking questions of people is really the best way to learn. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And you have to be naturally curious to mm-hmm. do what I do. And you have to be you have to be able to ask the question that's really on your heart and in your mind in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I've always tried to do is I'll ask questions that my wife will nudge me and say, don't ask that. <laughs> and and it, it can be a little provocative or a little mm-hmm. uh, like you're, you're treading into private areas. Yeah, But they're the kinds of questions that Everybody has on their mind. When we were interviewing Johnny and Ken Tata about, it was around their 25th wedding anniversary, and we were talking about being married for 25 years and going back to when they first met and fell in love Mm -hmm. and contemplated marriage. Well, the question that's on my mind has to do with marital intimacy for a woman who's a quadriplegic and her husband. Was he entering into marriage knowing it would be a celibate marriage or that their mm-hmm. intimacy would would always be limited at some level? Now, how are you going to ask that 
in a way that's appropriate. But you know, everybody's wondering. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that I've always tried to say, I, I want to do this delicately, but I'm not afraid to ask the questions that I think everybody's curious about. So I was going to ask you as a follow-up question, like you've interviewed thousands of people. When you're interviewing people, are you thinking, here's the question I know everyone else wants to know, or are you asking the question, here's what I want to know, or do those things, you know, how do those things intersect? In some well, ways? sometimes I'll go right to what is is my own curiosity, mm-hmm. but I recognize when I'm doing that, that I need to get back in the seat of the listener, because mm-hmm. I really feel like my responsibility as an interviewer mm-hmm. is to be there as a listener, trying my best to think what's the typical man or woman who's driving along listening to this this line of questioning, what is it that they are thinking? And it's interesting, Dan, when you sit down with somebody um, and you start asking questions about a book they've written or about something that's been on their heart, they have kind of a standard response to whatever your first question is. It's It's what's at the heart of their book. I always listen to that response and think, what would the person who might be just a little skeptical of the standard script, mm-hmm. how would they push back against that? And so I will often have early on in my questioning some kind of a question that's, uh, well, what would you say to the person who goes, yeah, but your background was this, or how would you get past the skeptic? That's a little harder pitch than the softball that you'd, you'd throw to a batter. But I, I want them to uh, engage the conversation at a little more, a little deeper level, a little more confrontational level, not because I want to confront them, but because I want, I want it to be intellectually rigorous, whatever it is we're going to be talking about. I want to ask you about, about audio. I mean, first, when you start, everything's radio, and yeah. now still radio has a, is a still big part of people's lives. But now that we're in the digital world, a lot of people are podcasting. You know, we have a lot of visual media, which mm-hmm. is good. I mean, you, you guys do Art of Marriage and some of these great video projects. But there's still something about audio that is just powerful. Like, uh, what is it about about that that is so, so powerful? Well, I'm still a huge fan of audio. And I've been involved, as you said, in video projects. And mm-hmm. there, there are things video can do that audio can't mm-hmm. do. But I think there is a level of intimacy in the kind of conversation you and I are having Mm -hmm. to be a listener to that without stopping to look at what are we wearing or is there something in our teeth or, you know, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. (laughs) Plus most people are listening to audio in a multitasking environment. Mm -hmm. They're listening while they drive or they're listening while they're working out. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's kind of a, a different part of the brain, a different focus now, I have to confess, I'm an audio learner, so maybe I'm predisposed toward audio because that's how I like to consume information. That's how it sticks with me well. But I also think there's a level of engagement and a level of intimacy that happens when we have this kind of conversation, and a listener who is listening to this podcast is like a third person who's sitting at the table with us, and the only problem is they can't call in and ask their question but other than that, right. they're the third party at the table uh, getting to participate in our conversation. Does it strike you that, you know, the work that you're doing at Family Life with interviewing people for the broadcast, you know, you're not just providing entertainment, but there's 
there's real opportunity for God to use that to change lives. Does does it strike you that, you know, we, we have this idea to interview this one person, and then when you start to hear stories of how that was used by God to change people, what does that do to you? Well, it's it's why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first couple of years that Dennis and I were on the radio, when we would go places, people would say, I listen to your program. We really love it. You guys make us laugh. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that was a nice compliment. <laughs> but after a couple of years of you guys make us laugh, we were looking at each other going, you know, this is not why we launched a radio program to make right. people laugh. We launched a radio program to provide practical biblical help for marriages and families. Mm -hmm. So now when people come up and say, you've mentored us in our marriage, Mm -hmm. you've mentored me as a parent. I didn't come to faith until I was in my 30s. I didn't know what marriage was supposed to look like. You guys have given us that. That's the kind of thing that, that's why we do what we do. Now I'll say, we we want our conversations to be lively and and we don't mind a little humor and and, uh, we don't mind a little entertainment value in what we do. But I think that's true when you're sitting around the dinner table having a conversation. Mm-hmm. If somebody says something funny, nobody objects to that. Right. And in fact, I remember the first recording session Dennis and I did, we recorded five programs the first day we sat down mm-hmm. to put the first week of Family Life Today together. And he said something that struck me funny, and I waited, and, and I cracked some joke. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> and after the program was over, I said to him, we can go back and we can edit that joke out. And Dennis looked at me and said, or we can leave it in. <laughs> and I thought, I think I like this guy. Yeah. I, you know, it, it was a it was a whole different approach to say this is how people have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's just have it that way. And so we don't take ourselves too seriously. You get to hear the real life from us, warts and all. And uh, I think that's part of the the attraction of the show that you know you're you're listening to real people talking, and I think it serves a purpose. Beyond, you know, people go to church and hear preaching, which is very important. You're actually a pastor as well. But there's something about the conversation format that is a form of discipleship, it seems like, that you don't get in kind of just preaching, right? Oh, I I think that's right. And I'm a fan of preaching, and I think it's essential. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there are some churches that have said, let's not do preaching, let's just do conversations. And I would go, well, you're missing something because faith comes by hearing a a preached word. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I did a sermon recently where I looked at what does the book of Proverbs have to say about the subject of drinking alcohol? Mm -hmm. And after we had spent some time looking at what the passages say on that subject, I said, I want to invite a couple to come up here and share with you their story because this has had an impact on their lives and on their marriage. And I want you to hear from them what their experience was. And I did about a 15, 20 minute interview with this couple at the end of my sermon. And I think uh, I think that kind of conversation brings real life to uh, an issue and helps disciple people in a way that hearing the proclaimed word doesn't. So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and. Mm. We just have to figure out how we do it appropriately. What initially drew you to this kind of work? I mean, you're a broadcaster. You could probably do a million different types of broadcasting. What particularly about family life and that kind of ministry drew you? Uh, I had been working in local Christian radio. I'd been in four cities uh, working at our Christian radio station, been in Tulsa, Phoenix, Sacramento, and San Antonio. And the the last job I was in in San Antonio, I was the general manager of a station. We had some long-form teaching programs on. We had music. We had uh, local talk shows. So Mm -hmm. it was a real mixed format. And I remember thinking that a lot of the long-form programs that were available just 
needed to be fresher, mm-hmm. needed to be more engaging. And I, I was a little frustrated that some of these programs just just didn't sound good. They sounded old. They didn't. I couldn't relate to them. Well, it was in the midst of that angst that Dennis Rainey called and said, we're thinking about starting a long-form program, and mm-hmm. we need somebody to help give shape and direction to it. <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, I now have two options. I can either go try and help create the kind of a program that I think Christian Radio needs, mm-hmm. or I can shut up about my complaints about long-form programs. So part of what drove me really was to say, I, I want to be a part of providing the kind of programming that we do and helping a long-form Christian radio get better and, uh, and excel. I think the other thing that really drew me was the, the theological integrity of the organization I was going mm-hmm. to work with. I knew I was going to work with uh, a well-respected, well-rooted, biblically grounded organization. And Dennis asked me the question when we were first talking about this. He said, are you passionate about marriage and family? Does marriage and family make you weep and pound the table? That's what he asked. Wow. And my answer to him was, theology makes me weep and pound the table. To the extent that marriage and family is on the heart of God, I'm passionate about it. What I didn't know when I gave him that answer was how much marriage and family is on the heart of God. Wow. I kind of saw marriage as kind of restricted to Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 and maybe a couple other passages Mm -hmm. in the Bible and the rest of it's about other stuff. What I've come to realize is that the Bible is about two things. It's about our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Jesus Mm -hmm. says all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. And then somebody says, "Who who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, well, today you could ask the question, who is my neighbor? And you could look at the person sitting next to you at the dinner table, whether it's your, your spouse or your mm-hmm. child. And that person is the person, ultimately your neighbor is the person closest to you who has a need. Mm-hmm. Those are the people in your family. So everything in the second table of the law, everything related to the one another's of the Bible, how we get along with one another in the body of Christ, mm-hmm. that all applies first in marriage and family. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I've come to understand how significant marriage and family is to God. So you're at a unique position, not only with family life, but also you're on the board of the National Religious Broadcasters. And so you you kind of have a, a good way to kind of see a bird's eye view of evangelicalism Yeah, um, in some respects. What gives you hope about the movement, evangelical movement? And what are some things that give you cause for concern? Well, I just came from a session where we saw some recent polling data from George Barna, and uh, he was talking about the percentage of the U.S. population that is evangelical. And he said, now, I don't define evangelicals the way a lot of pollsters do. I don't ask you, are you an evangelical? And then mark, yes, if you said yes. He said, we have nine questions that are theological questions, like, do you believe that there is a God who created Mm -hmm. the heavens and the earth? And do you believe that Jesus is the sinless Son of God? Basic orthodox questions. He says, we have these nine questions that we're asking people, and if they answer yes to all nine, we count them as evangelicals. And he says, our data says 6% of the U.S. population is evangelical. A lot of people going to churches who ought to be able to answer every one of George's questions right, Mm. theologically, and they don't or they can't. Mm -hmm. So what am I discouraged about? I'm discouraged about the lack of a theological foundation in the church in America, among Christians in America. We are we have more access to scripture, more 
Christian radio, Christian mm-hmm. television, books, the internet gives us everything. And people, um, the average pastor today, I believe, is less theologically literate than the average Christian layman was 200 years ago wow. in America. Why is that? Because we've become pragmatic, because we've uh, we've seen other priorities. I think we've been seduced away in some cases by other priorities than knowing and glorifying God, because in our zeal of of understanding that you can have a personal relationship with Christ. You come out of the Jesus movement in the 70s, and it's all about you can be born again, have a personal relationship mm-hmm. with Christ. You need to tell others about that. We, we kind of skipped the teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, mm-hmm. part of the Great Commission. And so our discipleship, in a lot of churches, discipleship just means we train people to share their faith with others. That's discipleship. Right. Discipleship has to apply to uh, how do I honor and glorify God in every aspect of my life? And that's a lifelong process. And it means getting to know God and his attributes and getting down deep. A lot of people in congregations say, I don't want theology. It's dry. It's dusty. It's boring. It doesn't apply to my lives. Well, shame on us as pastors or as preachers for presenting the truth of God in any way that's dry and dusty and doesn't apply to their lives, to turning it into a seminary classroom. We have to recognize the burden of that. But shame on us as pastors if we then say, well, I'm not going to teach theology. Mm -hmm. I'll just teach seven steps to better financial health for you and your marriage. I think it comes back to the shepherds, and the shepherds have got to be pointing people to the glory of God. Another follow-up to that question is a concern that I have, and I wonder if you share it, that I wonder if our people are ready for a kind of post-Christian nation or society where Christianity is not as popular or affirmed, you know, if our faith is, yeah. if the faith of people is, yeah. is rich and deep enough. I, I don't think we are ready mm-hmm. for it. Um, I think what we're seeing happen in the, in the coarsening of culture, I think we're seeing a, a, uh, an emerging younger generation that came up with an evangelical heritage or an evangelical rootedness that in the midst of cultural pressure to conform is capitulating to the cultural pressure to conform Mm -hmm. um, and trying to maintain their evangelical heritage Mm -hmm. while they capitulate. Mm -hmm. And what you're getting is some hybrid that is not biblical Christianity anymore. Mm -hmm. In fact, I asked George Barna when he talked about this 6% number, I said, is there a difference between boomer evangelicals and millennial evangelicals? I, I said, uh, or the millennial evangelicals, can they just not answer your nine questions to qualify as an evangelical? And he said, well, you're asking the question wrong. He said, but you're right. He said, millennials don't answer the nine questions as, uh, as, in, an, as in an orthodox way as an older boomer might. People who are active in their church, just mm-hmm. as active going, that the millennials will, are already capitulating on some of the core foundational stuff. Things like, is there a literal hell? Mm-hmm. And when former evangelical pastors write books saying, oh, no, everybody, love wins. Right. Right? Younger evangelicals mm-hmm. say, I would love that to be the answer. Maybe that is the answer. Mm-hmm. When, when guys emerge and say, um, you know, Maybe it's just a different way of understanding the Bible, but uh, we think same-sex marriage is not biblically condemned. We think active monogamous homosexual practice is okay within the Bible. And younger evangelicals say, 
I kind of like that to be the right answer because I have these gay friends and I don't want to keep having to say to them, you're in sin. Mm -hmm. So somebody comes along and gives them a little bit of cover with some Bible verses that they can apply. And I think what we're seeing is younger evangelicals who are saying, um, I'm going to, I'm going to have a different view than my parents did on this. And so I don't think we're ready. I think what's happening is that we are capitulating to the cultural drumbeat that says conform or be ostracized. What gives you hope about evangelicalism? What gives me hope is when I sit down with some of the young, on-fire, biblically grounded and rooted, passionate, younger pastors that I see pioneering, planting churches today, when I see uh, a guy a, a, a guy full of wisdom and zeal like David Platt become yes. the new head of the IMB, mm-hmm. and I go... Okay, God's still got his people in strategic places, and I just, I I do have a hope for a future when I start to see some of the the voices that are emerging and people who are saying, we will listen to you. You know, uh, Matt Chandler in Dallas last Mm -hmm. fall did a a series on gender at his church. Yeah, fantastic. Well, here's a a subject that in our culture, uh, the culture is saying, conform to the new way of thinking or be ostracized. Mm -hmm. And Matt says, no, no, we're not going to do that. And we can winsomely and intelligently stand up and say, here's what the Bible says. And it's not good to take the fences down. Somebody this morning quoted Chesterton who said, don't remove the fences until you first find out why they were put there. And and here's Matt Chandler stepping up and saying in the area of gender, let's not take all the fences down because they were put up for a good reason. And and I wonder if younger generations... You know, especially the guys who are on fire, church planners and people maybe have a, a even a different perspective than a previous generation in that they don't go into ministry expecting the culture to affirm Christianity. Whereas I think maybe an older generation, you know, if the nation was more, quote, Christian, right. you know, they're a little bit more put off by, hey, how come people are suddenly not liking us? Right. Does that it, make sense? Like, Sure it does. I mean, 40 years ago. When you talked about a when you talked about adultery, the culture generally said, "Well, yeah, we think adultery is wrong." Mm-hmm. Today, Ashley Madison says, "Have an affair," right, and turns it into a million dollar business. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you talked about uh, homosexual practice being sinful, the culture generally mm-hmm. said, "Yeah, we agree with you." Today, they don't. So, yes, a young pastor today who is—he's not under any illusions that he knows he's—he either knows that. Uh, he's going to have to be true to the Bible, and that means he's mm-hmm. walking into a hostile environment. Or mm-hmm. he's going to—he tries to capitulate and says, "Let me soften this a little bit. See if I can be friendly, and see if I can attract people by just not talking about the things that they right. disagree with." Well, that seeker orientation is no longer going to work mm-hmm. in this increasingly hostile culture because the culture will keep demanding that you give ground and give ground. Right. In fact, there's a fascinating book that uh, was written by Ian Murray, the Scotsman, wrote a book called Evangelicalism Divided, and he looked at Britain in the 1960s as a case study of uh, how the Anglican Church, there there were those like J.I. Packer and John Stott remaining in the Anglican Church, hoping to maintain a biblical anchor Mm -hmm. in a church that was drifting. Mm -hmm. And Ian Murray's thesis is, uh, instead of maintaining an anchor, um, some of these these biblical Anglicans just got moved farther away from their biblical moorings, not Stott and not, right. not Packer. They ultimately had to kind of look back at their Anglican church with sadness. Right. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I must separate myself right. from this 
And he said, uh, that's because Jones recognized that light and darkness cannot have fellowship. And more and more, the Anglican Church was losing its Christian witness because there were not regenerate people in the Anglican Church. Yeah. So I got a couple more questions. Um, first, I want to ask you, so let's say there's a, a young a person out there that loves radio, loves audio, loves kind of broadcasting technology, and they want to they want to get into this industry, yeah. whether in a Christian context or just in a, in a, quote, secular context. What advice would you give someone just starting out? Do they go to broadcast school? Do they, you know, what, what would you tell them? I, I'd tell them a couple of things. First of all, I'd say um, I would learn how to communicate with words mm -hmm. and how to communicate with your voice. That's the fundamental and most important thing. Distribution models for that kind of uh, compelling communication are going to change. What you and I are doing here today didn't exist 10 years ago. Podcasting didn't exist, mm -hmm. but it's popped up. It's important. It's just a new distribution model for mm -hmm. what we might do on radio. We're now doing it in a podcast environment. So what you have to learn is uh, how to have intelligent conversation, how to communicate effectively with your mind and with your voice. When you get that put together, now you can say, what's the best distribution outlet for that? And the second thing I tell them is I don't think radio is dead. I think radio will still have a life 20 years from today. What we're finding is that radio um, now has to compete with a whole lot of options it didn't have to compete with 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But I think radio will still be a competitor 20 years from now. And so radio may be the, the outlet that you want to go to. But more and more, it's going to be radio integrated with a digital platform mm -hmm. uh, so that you're heard on air, but you're also available online. And I think you have to learn how uh, both of those media work and know how to take your compelling content and distribute it in those channels. And that's the last thing I'd say. At the end of the day, compelling content always wins. Regardless of the channel. People have said to me for years, you know, this younger generation, they just do not have a long attention span. You guys do a 25-minute radio program on Family Life Today. Nobody listens for 25 minutes. They can't stay tuned in. It needs to be seven-minute increments. Mm -hmm. And I have said, well, that's really funny. My kids just went to a three-hour movie, and they were glued to it the whole time. Mm -hmm. It was compelling. Yeah. It was a compelling story. And I think the folks at the Serial Podcast taught us all <laughs> That you can have a oh, compelling yeah. narrative that goes on week after week, long form, and people stay with it if it's compelling. So, and everybody has a commute. That's right. I mean, that's the thing. And everybody has a, an iPhone or a smartphone. So I, I like what you said about radio because it seems like with all these things, just like books, printed books versus Kindle, now there's just competition and it. There's just different streams. Right. So here's all these different streams. And people now today seems like just want to be able to choose the stream. Yeah. So I want to hear Family Life today, but I want to hear it this way. Right. Or I want to hear it this way. Is that I, I think there's a lot. That's just where you have to say, how does the customer want this audio delivered? And mm -hmm. then you deliver it. Yeah. I think radio will continue to be one of the, the more viable options. Because what we found is when a guy gets in the car and uh, he starts to drive, he doesn't want to have to think a whole lot about what audio do I want to listen to mm -hmm. right now. I've got these podcasts on my phone. I could do satellite. He's just going to hit the button and he's going to listen to what's easy to get 
that keeps them engaged, mm-hmm. right? And radio is the easiest thing. Although, interestingly, one of the things we learned here at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention this week is that the new dashboards in cars, sometimes you can't find the radio. <laughs> On the new interactive screen, you hit the button, yeah. you can't get to local radio. So that's one of the challenges mm-hmm. that uh, that we're facing as we go forward. But, yeah, people people will often default to what's the easiest yeah. thing for me to get to. Well, Bob Lapine, thank you so much for taking time to uh, come on the podcast today and wish you very well. Well, I'll tell you what, these kinds of uh, engaging conversations, what I live for, right? That's right. Well, I want to thank my friend Bob Lapine for that terrific conversation. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by emailing wayhome at erlc.com or better yet, going into iTunes and writing a review. Reviews really help get the word out about this podcast. We'd love and appreciate it if you could do that. If you're interested in our other conversations with Christian leaders such as Matt Chandler, Molly Hemingway, Karen Swallow Pryor, please check out the podcast page on my website, danieldarling.com. We'd love to have you listen to those. You can also find information about Leland House Press and my new book, Engage, Maintaining a Christian Witness Online. Uh, We'll have information for that on my website as well. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Mm